This episode of Control is brought to you by Melbourne Recital Centre, where live music lives. Melbourne Recital Centre inspires our community through presenting and hosting hundreds of concerts each year, traversing all genres of music. Discover more at melbournerecital.com.au. There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful? Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't hear them on commercial radio. And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Hi, and welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to incredibly inspiring game changers and change makers in the arts and creative industries. I'm your host, Chelsea Wilson, and in this episode, I'm speaking to pianist, composer, sound designer, entrepreneur, lawyer, and board director, Monica Lim. Based in Melbourne, Monica has produced work for solo piano and instrumental ensembles, as well as theatre productions, contemporary dance, installations and film. Her work has been presented at Arts House, Asia Topa and Art Centre Melbourne, as well as international symposiums, such as the International Conference on New Interfaces for Musical Expression and the International Symposium of Electronic Art. Monica is currently working on her PhD at the Faculty of Fine Arts and Music, University of Melbourne, in gesture-led composition and new technologies. She's also part of the research team at VCA Dance's Track Lab and the University of Melbourne's Centre for Artificial Intelligence and Digital Ethics. Monica is co-founder of Project 11, a philanthropic initiative which supports the contemporary arts. She's also a board director, working for organisations including Melbourne Recital Centre, Substation, Liquid Architecture and Music Aviva. In this conversation, I ask Monica about her recent award-winning electromagnetic piano, her time as a fashion designer, her recent collaborative project Jagged and much, much more. This is Monica Lim in Control. Hi, Monica. Welcome to the Control Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat to you about your research work and your recent composing projects, but if we can, I'd love to go back earlier in your career. You were born in Malaysia, you studied piano from age four, and then migrated to Australia Mm -hmm. as a teenager. You then studied arts and law at university, However, I read that you wanted to continue in music, but you left the classical scene to focus working in law. What were some of the barriers that you faced that led to that decision? Yeah, look, at the time, I guess being a pianist, it's a, quite a solo, quite a lonely pursuit. I think I, it wasn't as if I could go join an orchestra. And I knew that I didn't have the technical chops to be a solo pianist or, you know, someone at at the top of that game that I I could make a career out of it. So I decided to do the sensible thing. And at the time, like, no, I, I didn't even, the thought of composition or doing something outside of that classical music performing sphere didn't even occur to me that it was an option. Hmm. You know, I just thought that was the only thing I could do as a pianist. And, well, I'm not good enough to do that, therefore... I won't do it. I'll go and study something else. Was that 
part of the classical piano training, do you think, that nobody sort of said, hey, Monica, you could train as a sound engineer or you could also be a songwriter or you could work in these other music spaces that you just thought it's either recital level pianist or nothing? Yeah, I think probably it was uh, just a lack of lack of knowledge, a lack of lack of people around me that because I come from a very academic family where everyone's like a professional, like is a doctor or accountant. There's no artist in my family. So I did not have anyone I could talk to uh, in that sense. And this, if you remember that this was pre-internet days as well. This is pre-YouTube and yeah, it wasn't information wasn't as readily available then. So you moved into the law space, but specifically into tax law. Is that right? Yeah, I just sort of fell into that. I think it was the, it was, um, it was one of, I think when I finished law, GST had just been introduced. There was a huge demand for people who could advise in that space. And I just fell into it. It was the first job that I got out of uni. Do you think there's any parallels or connections that you can make between working in the legal world and working in the music scene? Very loose parallels. I mean, they're both quite creative, to be honest. Uh, working in taxation is very legislative based, but there are, I suppose, ways that you can structure things that are that require some creative mm. thought or at least some out-of-the-box thinking. I think really being in the professional, sort of corporate professional world has been really useful for me in terms of other skills that I find I'm probably, I'm probably one of the more organized artists out there. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do invoicing really well. I do admin really well. I Contracts. Yes. Um, I answer emails really promptly. It's, it's something that maybe doesn't happen or it's not as... I don't know, I, I feel like since uh, I'm in the art world that sometimes there's a little bit more leeway for, you know, loose communication where there, there isn't such a thing in the corporate world. You also established your own fashion label, Fame Agenda, and a chain of clothing stores across Australia and Asia, which is a really interesting move. What was this time in your life like and what was the impetus behind the label? That started when I was pregnant. Really? So, yeah, yeah. So what happened was I got pregnant. I was on the maternity leave and I was so bored. I was bored out of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've always been one of those people that need to do things and new things as well. I'm just really easily bored. I completely relate. <laughs> yeah. Completely relate. So um, while I was pregnant with my first uh, child, I started making handbags. Wow. Yeah, because it's one of those things I felt that was more accessible like I, I didn't have any you know technical background in sewing and anything else and handbags was quite easy to to start and learn so I did some courses and um, yeah I started a chain of a label of handbags which actually did quite well I think we were Lane Crawford in Hong Kong picked it up like the first collection it's incredible <laughs> yeah. and then um after yeah a few years of doing that I thought okay let's let's move into let's move into clothing and that's how fame agenda started you know absolutely no business planning no no SWOT analysis or anything like that just just thought oh, I'm gonna do this and did you expect that kind of response you know what did that feel like having a retailer in Hong Kong wanting to stock the bags it's a great feeling but also 
uh, when you are starting out, it's really intimidating because then you've got to supply these bags, you've got this order which you don't have to fulfill. Um, yeah, so, and I was working, I suppose, I was um, designing the bags myself here, but then I was getting them made up in Indonesia. Um, so a lot of difficulty with that international sort of trying to get things made somewhere and being here as well and having... Yeah, logistics. Yeah, and having babies at the same time. Yes, I remember actually a few trips where I took you know my six-month-old or year-old child to Indonesia and was That's just incredible. in the markets buying hardware with this child <laughs> on a pram. And what do you think your biggest learnings were from this time developing your own label, your own range, your own retail stores? What are some of those major things that you learned? I think the major thing actually for me was just the fact that you have to be when, when you run a small business, um, you have to be self-sufficient at many, many things. Um, so you have to learn a bit of everything. You've got to do a bit of your marketing, your website, like design. Like I learned, you know, Photoshop, whatever. And I guess from that, I got the maybe the mindset that I can actually learn. I can learn if I need to and to not be afraid of learning new things. Yeah, that's brilliant. I read that around 2014 or so, you felt a need to compose again, and you decided to move back into the music space in a serious way. What was happening for you at this time to make that move? I met some people who encouraged me. So I did actually do, when I was in high school here, and my first or second year of uni, I was involved in some student productions, theatre productions, and I was actually writing music for those productions a little bit. And that was something which I absolutely, absolutely like, I really loved. Although it never, I still never thought to do composition. I don't know why. Um, and then, I don't know, eight, eight years ago maybe, um, I met people who were in that world and wanted me to, encourage me to, to start writing mm. music for them. And that's, and that's how it started. So I would write things uh, or arrange things for people and then I got to the stage where I thought I need help uh, or I need I need some sort of reference around me so that I can actually improve because I yeah I was just doing it myself and that's when I went back to uni to do music. So how did it feel kind of going back into that composition space? Uh, weird. <laughs> Weird, because, well, partly because of age, the age difference. Um, I was at, because I started back at a bachelor, with a bachelor degree in interactive composition, and I was studying with 18-year-olds who were basically like the same age, almost the same age as my children by that mm -hmm. stage. So it, it was really good in a sense, because now I think I have um, a good understanding of a really wide range of music, musical styles. But but it is challenging to be the mature age person. <laughs> yeah, but you also have the life experience and the things that you want to say in your composing. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say that, I mean, I don't see how my colleagues who were 18 could compose because I could, I don't think I would have been able to do anything meaningful when I was 18. Mm. Whereas I think, yeah, I do have more to put into the work now. So between studying originally with piano and then moving into law and moving into having your own business and moving into motherhood did you continue to play and compose just for yourself or did you have a complete stop with music 
It was never a super complete stop in the sense that I always had a piano at home. So there were times where I could just play, but, you know, there could be months where I didn't touch it. Yeah, it definitely, my technical skill level definitely just went down the drain. So it was only after, I think, after all that franticness of the career building and the business building sort of settled itself that I found myself needing to to find the music again. Did it make a difference also what age your children were at in terms of returning to music, being able to have more time, you know, the more independent the kids get, the more time that you have back to yourself where you can focus on creative pursuits? Um, so time has always been the biggest challenge because when I, when I started comp- looking at music and composing again, the kids were still quite young. Um, but I actually found that the lack of time sometimes pushed me to actually do things. Mm. So I would be, I'd be composing in the car while waiting for them you know, on their sports <laughs> yep. activities. Yeah, that literally because that was the only time yeah. I had. Yeah, so because yeah. I was doing other things as well, um, still in the business. So whatever time I had, I would just jump onto the music. And actually now now that I'm more focused on music and sort of doing it more full time, sometimes I find that I probably need to be, uh, yeah, I need to be pressured a bit more. Yeah, there's nothing like a deadline, is there? Or just, I've got this half an hour window. I've had that as well. You know, I've got a two and a half year old and, you know, just having a mate take him for a walk around the block and just going, right, I've got an hour to finish the lyrics of this song and that's all I've got, so I better do it. (laughs) You know, whereas if I had the whole day free, I'd probably end up scrolling Instagram and (laughs) having a cup of tea and chatting to mum on the phone and, you know, the day just feels endless and the lyrics don't get written, so (laughs) I completely understand. Um, So you're currently completing a Master's of Music at the Faculty of Fine Arts and Music University of Melbourne in interactive composition. Can you tell us about your work with cognitive neuroscience and the work that you've undertaken with dancers and motion sensors? It's amazing. Yeah. um, Well, I've transferred to a PhD, so I'm halfway through the PhD now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. How did it start? Gosh, this is is a project that I started with Carol Brown, who's the head of dance at VCA. And we were doing work with the neuropsychiatry department, Marta Garrido there, and and just looking at how science could inform a creative arts approach, like what we could use from that to actually create work. Mm. So from that, we decided to, because looking at the whole cognitive area, we decided to try this whole area of interactive sound, what we call choreosonic, so movement-making sound. And that's become a whole research focus for me, actually. Um, Just looking in terms of how we can use our body to make sound. Because, I mean, with classical music and in the old days, like we we have to use our body to make sound. Like you either sing or you you bow. You know, you bow something, you pluck something, you hit something. But now with computer music and electronic music, actually we have basically separated the body from sound making. And then now we're trying to sort of try and put that back together again. Um, so using the digital space, but but still using the body to make sound. And I I work a lot with dancers in that space, but also with non-specialist, what we call non-specialist musicians. So I use that as a way of 
participation in sound making for anyone. Wow. Um, so, for example, I'm building a work at the moment where we are using just computer vision. So, uh, for children to actually play the piano, play the um, disc clavier, just ways of making sound that you don't have to be a complete expert to encourage participation from everyone in sound making. I saw a piece of yours online, the Mental Dance Project, which was developed during and across the different lockdowns. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So it was originally intended to be a dance music collaboration piece that was going to be live, but then you sort of moved it across to Zoom and you had a digital audience. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and how it worked? Yeah, so it started off with uh, a collaboration with Carol and Marta on mental dance. And we were using wearable sensors. So wearable sensors are like um, like your phone. They, they basically sense um, gyration and acceleration. And of course, with lockdowns, that whole project had to stop because we couldn't be in the same space. And the dancers, um, the dancers didn't have the technical, mm. you know, ability and the sort of programs and technology with them to be able to do that themselves. So the only way we could collaborate still in this chorisonic world where you have interactive sound and mu- sound and movement was through Zoom um, because that was as easiest everyone knew how to use Zoom but how do you analyse movement through the screen? Uh, so the only way that could be done was through computer vision and luckily enough that has now advanced uh, so that the um, AI that can recognise the, the body through the screen is now very advanced and, and very fast so we did some performances where I would basically, through Zoom, analyze the dancers' movements, and then that would be transferred and to trigger sound, and then that goes out into in Zoom. real time. In real time, in real time. Wow! And so you could have uh, we had two dancers. So basically, they were working in separate spaces in their own homes, but their movement together was affecting the sound. So it was, yeah, it was a interesting idea of being together yet still apart and the dancers were performing set choreography that was designed for them it wasn't set i think it uh you know they had loose sort of uh it's almost like a graphic score if you think about it they had set uh movements but within that there was also space space to improvise especially uh one of the movements we actually use a neural network um, so we use an AI to actually learn the movement as they did it. And so every performance of that would be different because what you start off with would be mapped to a different sound. Yeah, I feel like I'm not explaining that very well. <laughs> I, I watched it. I, I watched a lot of it on Vimeo and I read the accompanying article as well but I still just kind of you know I had so many questions like how does this actually work so in terms of the musical note choices how had that been programmed so that particular movements triggered particular notes is there a kind of musical decision that you as a composer or the programmer of the technology on the receiving end is pre-programmed so that it doesn't just sound like a completely you know, unlistenable mess of notes? 
Yeah, um, I think a lot of that sound designed, rather than using notes, we were playing with the voice, actually. Um, so we recorded Austin Haynes, who is an amazing countertenor, and we actually used the movement to to change effects on the voice. So, uh, for example, we use granular synthesis quite a lot. That's where the voice is cut up into, or sound samples are cut up into small grains, and then the movement would change. You know what sort of grains are being a. Uh, sounded how large those grains are, the intervals between the grains and things like that. And so what was the audience response like to the online performances? We got lots of feedback that it was definitely the liveness was something that they felt was really important because a, a lot of digital sort of online works during lockdown, they were pre-recorded and you were just basically watching something that had been pre-recorded. So we're missing this live this feeling of something being at risk of going wrong, you know, that liveness, mm. that performance managed to still have to give the audience that feeling of liveness. Yes. And also for actually the performers, we, we felt like the dancers were saying that they felt nervous before the performance. They felt the butterflies in the stomach that they hadn't felt for a long time. That's why I'm sort of interested in this technology space as well, is that feeling of unpredictability that you get. Things that are slightly out of control. Last year, you won third prize in the 2021 Guthman Musical Instrument Competition. Congratulations. <laughs> Can you tell us about creating the electromagnetic piano? Yeah. Well, it's not, a, it's not a new idea, first of all. There has been lots of versions of electromagnetic pianos made throughout the years. But uh, what happened was they're all elsewhere, somewhere in a university, somewhere overseas. And David Shea, who's my collaborator, and I, we wanted one that we could play here. So we <laughs> thought, <laughs> um, as usual, like, you know, I just dive headlong into things first without thinking. So I thought, oh, let's make one. And luckily we came, uh, we, we, I knew Mirza, who is the engineer who, who did most of the actually hard work, actually making, you know, the, uh, all the electronic bits. But um, the idea of the electromagnetic piano is that it just, it's an extension to the normal piano, uh, an acoustic piano, but it allows a different timbre and more techniques to be used. So the, the one limitation of the piano mm. is the fact that it can't sustain very long, the notes die out really quickly, and you can't do things like, say, go from soft to loud. There's, you, you're either soft or you're loud. So what happens with the electromagnetic piano, we use electromagnets on each string, which basically vibrate the string. And that's controlled uh, by little mini computers on each string. So we can basically sustain that note as long as we want. And we can, yeah, we can do harmonic sweeps. We can do loud to soft, you know, those kind of gradual uh, effects on the piano that we can't usually do. And how do you actually play the electromagnetic piano? Yeah, so it just works on MIDI, uh, MIDI being the most common protocol for electronic instruments. So you could play it with anything, with a, any MIDI interface, like a keyboard or pedals. Uh, I, I use, I tend to play it with a computer, so I tend to make sort of generative algorithmic uh, music and then get my computer to, to basically play the piano. Wow. Has there been recordings with electromagnetic piano in 
popular music that people wouldn't even realise is an electromagnetic piano? Or is it kind of not crossed over into those spaces as yet? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know of any that have crossed over into the popular music sphere. Uh, I'm pretty sure there are recordings. There's certainly YouTube videos out there of um, compositions that have been done for electromagnetic piano. Not popular music. No, there could be an opportunity there. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like Björk's going to get onto this at some point. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the clips that I saw, it was, again, gestures and movement. How does that work with the instrument? Yeah, yeah. So that's something that actually we did as a concert earlier this year where I actually set up three stations in a room around the piano. And so the audience was actually going around and playing the piano and also affecting effects on the acoustic sound with their movement. Wow. And what was the audience experience and feedback like? Were the audience musicians or non-musicians? A whole mixture of musicians and non-musicians. You didn't definitely didn't have to be a musician. It was programmed to be to just work with any movement. Um, audience feedback uh, didn't do a survey of the audience <laughs> after, but uh, I was surprised by the because sometimes it's really hard to get people to participate. Yeah, um, but I was surprised in this case because actually from the very start of the performance right till the end, there was always someone at those stations. It was never empty. So people were very willing to, to give it a go and try it out. And what did it sound like? What kind of genre space do you think this instrument really would thrive in? Well, what we did was pretty very much within the experimental space. However, because the magnet sounds so good as a drone, I could actually see it in a lot of, you know, like um, mm. like uh, Niels Fram, that sort of very sort of meditative, mm-hmm. easy listening, classical contemporary would also, it would also really work well in that environment. This episode of Control is brought to you by Melbourne Recital Centre. From October to December, the centre presents season four, Blossom, featuring incredible indie rock heroes, alt country legends, humble singer-songwriters, super folk groups, ethereal choirs, and much more. You don't want to miss a moment. Explore the season of live events at melbournerecital.com.au forward slash blossom. You've been quoted as saying, as a composer, you're never fully satisfied just working with sound and that you see colour with pictures. So visual elements are a major part of your work, which is why you often collaborate with film and dance. Can you describe more for us what you mean by seeing pictures in colour and what that experience is like? So this is something that, oh look, it was definitely a lot stronger when I was younger. And I think a lot of the research you know, on synesthesia speaks about that as well. Um, I used to always see the note G as brown and F was always bluey aqua. And I suppose there's been a lot of research, uh, a lot of some composers, obviously very well known, Messian. I don't know whether it has really influenced my approach to sound and interactivity. Maybe. I just, I guess... I'm always interested in the social context of music as well, and maybe that's why music is so abstract. That that for the moment, at least, I feel like I need um, another medium to to explore those sort of social relational aspects of music, where we can use music 
to explore relations between people or our relations to the technology that we use, social media, that sort of thing. You've collaborated with fellow interactive composers and lighting designers for projects such as White Knight, which was a project you co-developed which spanned three kilometres. Can you tell us what you think makes a great collaboration and how you approach making work for a public space? That work was a very early work. I did it in second year of undergrad. (laughs) So I think that was one of the first uh, public works that I've done. Mm, Collaboration is a a really difficult one. Uh, A lot, most of my projects are collaborative. I, I like working in that space, I guess because no one is an expert in everything. And I feel like, yeah, I learn so much when I work with other people. But it's challenging, especially because I do a lot of cross-cultural work as well. So when dealing with someone from another culture as well, it, it can take a, a lot longer. You know, you, you just need a lot more time and patience to give space to everyone. But you, you end up making something that you could never make on your own. So I love collaboration. What do you think makes a great collaboration? Generosity, I think. Everyone being generous enough to give space for ideas. I think for me that's that's the major, major part of it. Your recent project, Jagged, combined dance, music and film. And this was another project that was originally conceived as a live show but then became a film during the lockdown period but recently became a live show again but then incorporating the film. Can you tell us about this project and how you approached designing the music? So this project was unusual in the sense that I design most of the music first and then and then the film was made, which is the total opposite of how it's usually done. Usually you make the film first, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did that work? They, they edited the film to your music? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is yeah not the usual not the usual process. So uh, yay for musicians. <laughs> when I first started on the music and it was inspired by a book, I always conceived it as a dance work for some reason. Um, but then uh, you know someone introduced me to Gary Nugroho, who's this amazing film director, and Rianto, who's this amazing uh, dancer. So we decided to to make it into a film and. Yeah, which which worked out well because of COVID and everything else. And then when we made it into a performance work again, so I the, this music had already been made, but then I totally rejected it because when you start working with bodies in the space and I had two choreographers, Melanie and Rianto, so a lot more ideas thrown into the space. So the music just had to change. Like we had, we, I, I still use bits of it and ideas of it. But, you know, the whole, whole pieces had to be rewritten. And then Rianto also really loved the whole interactivity of his movement-making sound. So I had to make some sections where, where we use that, where we actually use his movement to make sound, which, which worked well in the context of the, on the, of the piece because he was like the mother figure in that, in that piece. So it made sense for him to be controlling and making sound with his movement in that piece. So how did it work in terms of collaborating with the choreography? Were you at the development stage and the rehearsal stage and then they'd say, oh, actually, Monica, we need this section to be longer. Can you change this section? Were you responding to the movement 
or they were responding to the music? How did you go about that back and forth dialogue? Oh, it was definitely all of that. <laughs> all of that. So I was I was in the development. We had we didn't have too much time actually. We had three weeks of development and then the presentation. Wow. Yeah, it's that's really short. It was intense, especially with two choreographers, because you know space for everyone. <laughs> it takes time. Yeah, so a lot of the music they had bits that they could try out already. Like, uh, okay, we've got this idea for movement. Let's try this music with it. Or, and then there were things that were just developed. And I said, oh, I need this thing to chess five. I need a beat. And a lot of my music doesn't have a beat, so I just had to cre- create something <laughs> that that had a beat that the dancers could could follow. So, and then a lot of it was just tweaking durations, you know, to fit to fit the durations that we needed and things like that. So the live incarnation was a three week kind of development period, but the project had been going for quite some time before that with creating the original film and composition. So how did it feel for you to finally kind of see this as a live work? Did you celebrate afterwards? Yeah, we definitely did. Um, I'm just so glad that it could, like we finally made it and delivered the work because there were so many hiccups along the way. Uh, we did have a prior development, which got shut down after a few days. Why was it shut um, down? Because of lockdown? Lockdown. Right, lockdown, okay. yeah. And then just trying to get everybody. And for a long while, we, I thought that we'd have to do it without Rianto because I just didn't see him being able to come into the country. Mm. So we were working towards a version where he was there just as an online presence, like a, a digital presence. But I'm so glad that he actually managed to come come in in the end for the end project yeah what a relief and you know so incredible that you all managed to rally and and get this together because there's been so many international collaborations over the last few years that just have not been able to see the light of day you know given the circumstances it's still ongoing now I mean yeah I think Japan's only just opening I think later this month you know like there's still uh we're still so limited yeah with how we can collaborate with our artistic peers and other territories will there be more shows of Jagged do you think I hope so um I'm a very inexperienced producer I also produced this piece so yeah I need to do more work in that space and actually well, that's that's incredible if that's one of your first producing roles and it's something that involved film, dance, music, sound, AI, people coming from different countries. I mean, that's incredible. So a huge congratulations on that. Circling back a wee bit, we were just saying before how you articulated from the Masters of Research over to her PhD. What are some of the main questions that you're hoping to find answers to through the PhD work? Uh, So I'm really looking at this uh, question of participation in music. Yeah, a lot of my work in sound making, uh, creating creating technologies to enable that, not creating technologies, I suppose using existing technologies, but creating interfaces to enable that. Um, For example, the computer vision one, I created a tool where anyone really can use, can just go to a website and use your movement to change sounds or change MIDI. Um, So that's a really accessible sort of interface that you don't need any coding skills to have. I work a lot with web audio. So web audio is uh, audio that is generated by the browser. So it used to be that websites could only play back 
audio files. But now on the browser, you can actually synthesize audio, which means that you can then use all sorts of technology on the web to be interactive. So I'm looking at that as a way of participation as well for, for music making. And are you enjoying the process of putting together the PhD and the work associated with it? Or does it seem that the more you look into it, the more questions you have and the more ideas you get? To be honest, I, I'm just so busy making work that I, um, I trust that when it comes to the writing of the thesis, that it, <laughs> it will all come together. And I think it will because there are definite threads of inquiry uh, that are common to all my projects. But it's definitely a creative, what we call a creative-led PhD. So it, the actual creation of the art uh, drives drives the research. And that's definitely been my approach. I, I, I make the art and then I, I guess I will put that into some sort of a comprehensible, um, useful publication for others somehow. You're also a board director and serve on the boards of Liquid Architecture, Substation, the Members' Council for Musica Viva and the Melbourne Recital Centre. Can you talk us through your role as a board director and what inspired you to work in a strategic leadership position? The positions that I have as director are, I guess, fairly new. And um, look, I've been involved in sort of the philanthropic space in arts for a while and I've always been interested in how we can I suppose contribute and and create great opportunity for for artists and especially emerging artists so when I get approached to be a director I guess I guess I'm just trying to to do my bit I feel like perhaps I can bring a perspective that might be slightly different from the the usual board director because I, I am a practicing artist in a fairly niche field. Well, you're also a businesswoman and a creator and a lawyer. So <laughs> it's a pretty incredible skill set as a board um, director. Possibly, possibly a very uh, mixed skill set. Yeah, but I think, yeah, uh, a sense of I'm very practical. Like I when I, I get things done. So I think that's something that's maybe hopefully useful to, to the boards that I'm, I'm on. But it is a learning process because I'm, as I said, I, I don't have much experience as a board director. Actually, that's something that also requires experience to be an effective one, I think. And I'm finding that I need to learn actually to be more forthright and more, maybe more, more forceful in my opinions as well. So that's something that's, that's taking time. I'm, I'm learning and I'm hoping that that sort of space um, mm. can open up to more people of diversity as well because it is sometimes quite a non-diverse space. In terms of being on the board for Melbourne Recital Centre, can you tell us what you think the role of a recital centre is in a major capital city? So the ambit of the recital centre, because it is a state-based organisation, is to be a space of music for everyone. For all Victorians, actually, that's the specific term, a place for all Victorians. That's what drives the board, uh, certainly the board vision. When the Recital Centre, I think, first was established, there was definitely this view that it was a place for classical music, mm. fine music, uh, they called it, I think, somewhere. But uh, I think to be a space for everyone, it's got to include a lot more than that. And that's that's an area for me as a board director that I'm really interested in to, to actually to see how we can bring bring more audiences to the MRC that are f 
that are representative of Victorians of all backgrounds. Yeah, and I think that inclusivity really starts at board level, staff level, you know, and how to work in with artists. I think spaces like the Recital Centre can feel so intimidating for, you know, different types of people or can feel kind of exclusive. So trying to develop strategies and ways for people that make all kinds of music and people that want to enjoy all kinds of music to feel like that's a place for them, you know, is quite challenging. I mean, in contrast, working on a board like Liquid Architecture... I mean, that's an organisation that's making work. What's the kind of difference um, in terms of being a board director of an organisation making work versus an organisation presenting work? I guess it's different in the sense that liquid architecture has a particular focus and it doesn't need to cater for all Victorians. It can be very specialised in what it does. So there is that freedom to, to do something quite specific, uh, whereas the, the MRC definitely has a broader role than that in, in Victoria. So that's quite different in, in terms of the focus of what you can do. Budget-wise, it's very different, of course, being a, being a state-funded organisation on, on, with MRC on one hand and Liquid Architecture being a very small organisation. Uh, the board is bigger than the staff, you know, it's, we've got more board members than staff members. Uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, um, so the function, yeah, the board functions very differently as well. It's, it's a lot more hands-on as opposed to the MRC, which we, we, we have to be just a lot more strategic and higher level. Yeah. I'd love to chat to you about Project 11, which is a philanthropic organisation that you established with your partner to support the arts. Can you tell us about the organisation and what you hope to achieve next? So it's, it's just a very loose term, the Project 11. I think we just, we just wanted something that we could pop everything that we do in. And it's basically uh, my partner, Confer, and uh, it's basically the projects that we want to support. <laughs> there's, there's no... There's no, uh, there's no board or, or no, um, you know, constitution that we have to adhere to. Uh, but our passion, my, my partner, Confer, he's very much, uh, his interest is in the visual arts and myself more in the performing arts. But the one thing that we have in common is that we like things that are a little bit crazy, that take risk. So basically, we feel that we need to, to fund the type of art mm. where maybe others might not fund because it's it's risky, it might turn out to be an absolute disaster. <laughs> and that's fine because it, it's more the process and the idea of being able to take that risk that attracts us. Um, and that's where we feel that, that perhaps it would be very difficult to for artists in that, that sort of space to get funding, other types of funding. And that's how we learn and that's how art progresses in general, right? So if you're having to think in a vocational way about trying to always make revenue from the art then there's certain limitations Mm. around trying to make something for the mainstream whereas if it's purely about experimentation and pushing boundaries and it does sound terrible or look terrible that's okay as you said it's about the process and those processes are going to potentially in future inform new mainstream processes you know and we say that all the time with contemporary music and popular music artists like Solange who incorporates these beautiful visuals who you know I'm sure 20 years ago that was part of some experimental thing that looked Mm. terrible (laughs) and now it looks really beautiful and she could just pick up that technology and pick up those ideas and make it work in that kind of concept so you're a board director 
you're a composer, you're doing a PhD, you're a mum, you've got a lot that you're juggling here. How do you manage all of this without experiencing burnout? Or do you sometimes experience burnout? I'm really lucky because I have an amazing mum. <laughs> my mum's here at the moment. So, um, and all through my life, I think when my kids were, were young, she's always been there to help out. And that has given me a lot of flexibility that other mums wouldn't have had. I remember actually when I first started my business and my younger one was six months old, I left him in Singapore for six months. Was it three, three months? I left him in Singapore for three months because the business really required like 100% of my time at that stage. Um, so I was lucky. So he was in Singapore with your mum? With my mum, yeah. Not by himself? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Just thought I'd clarify that. <laughs> yeah, uh, not by himself. Although he, <laughs> he's, he's at Changi he was, Airport, just hanging yeah, out. Yeah, he, so he was a really independent six-month-old. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I suppose that extra family support was was really super super helpful. Juggling, juggling. We all juggle. I don't know. Um, I, I'm quite a fast worker. And I guess, yeah, when you don't have much time, you just tend to do things, I think. So does it just feel like one project to the next to the next? Do you take time out to celebrate what you've achieved? Or does it just feel like you're just constantly ticking things off a list? I'm definitely constantly ticking ticking things off a list. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Maybe it's all artists. I'm sure you feel the same, but you're never fully 100% satisfied with what you've done. I mean, yes, you've resolved something, a project, you've resolved it enough to be able to deliver it and finish it, but it's never as good as you want it to be. Or certainly I feel that way. It's never as good as I want it to be. So it's on to the next project. (laughs) A lot of your work is in exploration and experimentation, and you seem to just dive in and boldly try new endeavors, which I really love. You've already achieved so much, but what do you want to discover next? What is on that Monica Lim bucket list of things that you are still yearning to do? Wow. There's still so much because I've just, I feel like I've just started. I've just started on this journey of being creative and making, making things that maybe people can interact with and find meaning in it. Um, I, I don't have a bucket list because everything that I do is so, I feel like every project is so different. So it's definitely, but it's always one project leading to another question, which then gets explored in another project, which leads to another question. So it's never ending. And I hope that continues, actually. I I hope I continue to find those questions that lead me to the next project. It sounds very much like the fire in your belly and the joy for music is still really strong. I hope so, yeah. (laughs) Monica, thank you so much for joining me on the Control Podcast. It's been so great to chat to you. Thank you so much for having me. That was our conversation with Monica Lim. For more information on Monica's work, please check the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode of Control, please subscribe through your preferred podcast platform. And if you have a moment, please leave a review. It helps others to find the podcast. More information on Control and full transcripts for each episode can be found at controlpodcast.com. 
gmail.com. And please keep in touch. Follow Control Podcast on Facebook or Instagram and send a message. We'd love to hear from you. Coming up soon on the Control Podcast, we speak to broadcaster and author Jacinta Parsons, composer and pianist Nat Barch, film composer and CEO Amara Primero, and author, musician and disability advocate Eliza Hull. This episode of Control was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thanks for listening. This is Chelsea Wilson signing off. This episode of Control is brought to you by Melbourne Recital Centre. The centre has just launched its biannual Merlin Meyer Music Commission, a program that supports Australian female composers to create new musical works. Discover more about the commission and how to apply at melbournerecital.com.au forward slash news.